Thank you, worship team. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? I would encourage you to keep it open at the passage, 1 Corinthians 11, either with a print copy of God's Word or on your mobile device. In this church, we desire to preach the Bible expositionally, which means that we just want to make sure that the point that the author was making is the point of the sermon which means that we typically go from one passage to the next passage. We don't skip around. We don't preach really what we want to preach. And so normally that means if I preach on 1 Corinthians 9, the next week you can assume that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will be what is being preached on. And so this morning that's a helpful observation because if we were ever to pick the passage that we want to preach about, I doubt No one in human history ever said, hmm, I really want to preach on head coverings. (laughs) So that is the passage we have before us, but we believe that all of God's word is profitable, and we believe that it is helpful for us. So I'd like to begin by just reading the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. I'll pray for us after we read. This is God's word. Now I commend you... Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her hair uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time in which we can examine your word. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, what we just so beautifully sung a moment ago, that your spirit would give us this illumination to see how we are to live and to submit ourselves under your word. And, Lord, most of all, we pray that in this time that you would help us to leave with a greater love and esteem for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It seems that the older I get, the more there's an appreciation for organization and for order. You know, when you're young as a kid, you kind of just go with the flow. You're hanging out with mom and dad. You don't really have anywhere to be. But it seems like when you become an adult, the older you get, it kind of matters about I need to be somewhere on time. And maybe we become more inconvenienced by things slowing us down. And so I wonder if if maybe you experience this as well, that you appreciate when things work smoothly, when systems are in place, when there's clear leadership and order in an organization. So a couple summers ago, my wife and I were able to go on a nice vacation to celebrate 10 years of marriage. And in the middle of the trip, we had bought tickets to this dinner and a show, and it was actually a luau on the island of Maui. These tickets were expensive, The expectations were high, and when we got there, it just felt like chaos. We stood in this field that was like a mile-long line, and there was bugs and ants crawling all over us under the Pacific Island sun, 
And this line just never seemed to move. And it just felt like, you know, mumbling under my breath, like, who's in charge here? Like, are, are there kindergartners leading this thing? And, and I remember kind of maybe unhelpfully, like, walking up to the front and checking in to see, if, do I need to take over? I'll, I'll happily do this job for you. You know, and uh, I might have said some things that weren't very helpful in that moment. But I think, you know, there's a sense in which we like when things run well and operate well. We, we all know that, that feeling when we go to a restaurant or a shop and, and things are just done, you know, flimsy or clumsily and, and, and not organized. And, and maybe we scratch our heads too when we think, man, who's in charge of this place? But hopefully you're all more compassionate and gracious and you assume, you know, maybe there's a labor shortage, maybe they're understaffed and we should just be patient and gracious, right? That, that should be the response we have. But I think all, all of this to say, this is why going to Chick-fil-A is such a great experience, right? <laughs> because they have logistics down. It's like no matter how many people they have there, God has just ordained these people to know how to serve good food to a lot of people very quickly. And actually, I remember one time I went to Chick-fil-A and they messed up an order and they were mortified. Like, how dare us ever fail to serve you? It is our pleasure to serve. And so they gave me all this, like, free milkshakes and chicken sandwiches. But when we sense that goodness of order, that things are working the way they should, I think we're actually tapping into the part of us that reflects God and his order, and his design for creation. In in fact, the very first story we read in Scripture, the story of creation begins, really, that God saw that his creation was chaotic and unruly. And Genesis 1 is all about how God takes what is chaotic in the darkness and the waters, and he brings peace and harmony and and, and complements his his good creation. He, He brings Night and day with the sun and the moon, there's there seasons. He brings this harmony of, of land and sea, of male and female. God is an orderly God. He cares about design. He cares that things run smoothly. It reflects who he is. And so this morning, what we're going to see is that God doesn't just desire orderliness in his creation, but also in his new creation, in us, the church. And so this morning signifies a pivot in Paul's maybe structure of the letter. As we've gone through 1 Corinthians, Paul has been really attacking issue after issue after issue with the Corinthians. They've been dealing with a lot of different issues, but, but now Paul seems to be kind of zoning in on corporate worship, What should it look like when God's people come together to worship God? And what Paul wants to really kind of say from the get-go is is, is that God's people should reflect this type of order in worship. And so we're going to see over the next couple of months as as the time we have in 1 Corinthians that that Paul is going to deal with the issue of head coverings. People are getting drunk during communion. They're marginalizing the poor amongst their midst. They have a lot of issues with being superior with church gifts and spirit gifts. And, and, and so Paul just wants to kind of lay it out, lay it all out and say, listen, ideally, when God's people come together, they reflect God's desire for love and respect for one another and for order. And so this morning, as we come to this juncture of head coverings. I understand that, that many of us can maybe look at this passage and, and we could either think, well, as I look around, there's no one here. I think I see one person wearing a hat, but I think it's more of a fashion statement more than anything. <laughs> but do we really need to read this? Can we just kind of just say we read it and let's move on to the fun stuff and let's talk about the Lord's Supper? But then also some of us know that, that in recent decades, this passage has had no shortage of debates and academics have tried to really redefine what Paul meant here. And all of that makes sense in the current cultural moment we live in with the rise of feminism. No, Paul didn't actually mean this. This is what he meant. And so this passage brings a lot of attention. And so for, for our time this morning, though, I, I want us to be just a little bit crystal clear about what I think Paul's main point is. 
And here's what I'd argue Paul's main thesis is in this section, that Christian worship, when we come together, it shows respect for God's authority and his created order. That's what we are to reflect to the world and to the public and and for each other when we come together and worship, that we respect God's authority and his created order. And so what I'd like to do just briefly is I want to just run through Paul's argument. I want to sketch it out for us. I want to tell you kind of, you know, here's the underlying structure of this passage. And then what I'd like to do is to kind of come back and then maybe send, you know, spend a few moments thinking about what does it mean for us here in the United States in 2023. And so Paul begins with an, an odd verse in verse 2 where he kind of encourages them. He commends them. So if you ever say Paul doesn't give any encouragement in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's the one verse, right? He, he commends them. But even that's up for debate because he commends them. And then all of chapters 11 through 14, he just kind of tells them again and again what they're doing wrong. So... I think the best way we can maybe understand this verse is that, by and large, the church is doing a good job at remembering Paul's traditions, but that some, maybe a small minority camp, are kind of going rogue and doing some things that he doesn't agree with. But the presenting issue that Paul is dealing with here is the issue of head coverings. And I think for us, again, there's been two historical you know, ways of dealing with this passage. One is much more easier than the other. There are some Christians today and certain Christian denominations who think what you do with this passage is simply this, that when women pray and prophesy in the corporate gathering, they should wear something on their head, and when men pray or prophesy in the corporate gathering, they should not cover their head. And so that's why you will find in particularly maybe the Mennonite tradition, women wear things on their heads, and that's how they deal with it, and they just kind of pass, go, and move on. Man, that's really tempting. It'd be much easier just to take that simple interpretive. It kind of seems what Paul is saying. But I think we all kind of know. Again, as as we look around, there's not many women here wearing head coverings. I know a lot of good, evangelical, Bible-believing churches. I mean, churches who they want to obey God's word. They love God's word. And in those churches, no woman is really kind of being mindful of this command. And so what do we do? I think we need to do this kind of cultural interpretation. So do me a favor. Keep your finger there, but just go two pages over to the end of 1 Corinthians. Look at the very end of the book in chapter 16. Paul here, he gives a command so verse 20 of chapter 16, all the brothers send you greetings. Now, now here's, here's the command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now this morning, I deliberately observed all of you greeting each other, and I did not see a lot of kissing <laughs> going on. Now, and, and I don't think that we look at that command to greet one another with a holy kiss simply as cultural. We say, well, that's not our culture, so we don't have to obey that command at all. Well, I think we know that there's a value or there's a principle underneath that command to greet one another with a holy kiss, and that is that we are the family of God, that we are to show a culturally relevant way of that type of love and union and care for one another, which often in our context looks like a handshake, a fist bump, one of these... Right? So I think the same thing is applying here to head coverings. I don't think Paul is actually trying to tell us that this is what it looks like. He's actually, the reason why this passage is tricky and why it garners a lot of um, you know, academic articles and, and such is because what Paul does is he bleeds together theological categories with the cultural realities of the Greek and Roman world. And, and that makes it a little bit confusing to understand What does it look like for our culture, for the here and now? So with all of that said, there is a lot here for us as the church. So we don't want to necessarily just simplistically say this is what we should do, nor should we just ignore it and move along. So let me just briefly sketch out to you what I believe Paul's argument is in this section. Paul is arguing to the Corinthians 
that men should not pray or prophesy with their heads covered, but that women should cover their heads while they pray and prophesy. And he teaches this in order that the Corinthian believers will acknowledge, embrace, and represent the distinctions between men and women in corporate worship. Okay? So it's actually pretty simple. That's what he's arguing for. Men, don't cover. Women, cover. Why? In order to show and embrace that there are differences between men and women in the corporate gathering. Now, how does Paul argue for that? Well, first, we see in verses 3 through 6, his first argument is really Paul is having this wordplay on this idea of head. So if you look at verse 3, he says, you know, I want you to know that, that the head, right, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so he kind of goes on to talk about someone prays with their literal head covered or un- uncovered, it, it can actually bring shame or dishonor upon their metaphorical head. And so really his argument is, is that women should wear head coverings because if they don't, it brings shame or it disrespects their head. Okay? And again, we're going to come back and flush that out a little bit more. But, but that's really the point he's making in verses 3 through 6, to honor your head. But secondly, the second way Paul argues for this argument is in verses 7 through 12 because of the relationship between men and women. And so, so really in this section what Paul is doing, he's going back to the creation account and he's saying that the order in which men and women were made and created was not arbitrary. There is an ordering of why God made man first and then how women came out of man and that was for a designed purpose of God. But just to make sure that Paul doesn't take, people take his words and abuse him, he finishes up in verses 11 and 12, and he says, Nevertheless, the, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So he says, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that woman came from man, because where do all men come from now? Women, right? So he's really trying to help make sure that we understand that there should be this type of respect and mutuality between the sexes, but also recognizing from creation that there's a difference here. And so lastly, in verses 13 through 16, what Paul does is he, he argues from nature. And again, what, what's hard about this is, is he's making a, a principle. In verse 13, he says, judge for yourselves. He's kind of saying, isn't it clear, guys? No, it's not clear, Paul. I'm sorry. It's not clear at all. Um, but he, he, for them, it was clear. They would have understood exactly what Paul was saying. He's probably responding to a question, but he's saying, you know, nature shows that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair. Okay. Now, again, what's, what's hard about that is because we know that sometimes with hair, it's a cultural bias. And so there's things from nature we learn, but the, I think the principle he's really saying there is that men should look like men and women should look like women. Okay? So, so that is really kind of the, the, the tracing of the argument of what Paul is doing. And so for the rest of our time, what I'd like for us to do is to consider how do we take this idea of headship and, and head coverings and long hair and all of this and, and have anything to say about our time as we gather for corporate worship? And, and the first point is this, that, that, that Paul is telling Christians of all time that when we gather for corporate worship, we should have respect for authority. We should have respect for authority. So if you do me a favor, look in your Bible, look at verse 3. This is really the thesis argument, the main theological point he's driving. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now immediately we have three really big decisions to make about what Paul means in this verse. And the first, I'll just kind of go ahead and tackle it. Is Paul here arguing that all women should submit to all men? Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and they actually kind of do some interpretive work for me because my translation actually says husband and wife. But if you have pretty much any other translation, you'll notice that it'll just say man and woman. And the reason why there's a a tricky interpretive question there is because the word in Greek for man and woman is the same word for husband and wife. And so, you know, scholars and, you know, Greek theologians, they they debate 
what's the context here? Well, again, I think the ESV does a really great job at interpreting this for us, in which I believe that Paul is actually talking about authority in the context of marriage. But, but the second, I think, issue that we need to really understand here is what does it mean when he says head? This is where maybe a lot of trees have died in the last 30 years trying to describe what does Paul mean when he says head. And I think one of the problems why culture has such a hard time with this passage is because when we hear head and we read this, we read it through our Western lenses. We, we read it through what we normally associate when we hear that word head. And, and for us, we, we tend to think of like someone is the head of a department or the head of state, right? Or if you go to Hogwarts, you have a headmaster, right? We call them principals here. But, you know, we, we typically understand that person who is a head of something to connotate authority and command and, and typically people who are ahead of something, like as we would say, this person is heading up that department. They have authority to tell others who are underneath them, subordinates of theirs, to, to obey. And, and so normally speaking, in a state, the highest paid state employee are the football coaches, right? They get paid for the universities. They get paid millions of dollars, right? If you're the head coach of the Huskies, you know, typically if you're the head of something, you get paid more, you get more esteem, people have to listen to you, you get to tell the other coaches and the players what, what it's going to look like on the team. And so therefore, when we have that idea of head... And we read, again, what Paul says here. He says, hmm, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and that the head of a wife is her husband. And we kind of scratch our heads like, well, it kind of seems like Paul is saying that women are less. It kind of seems like he's putting man in this preeminent spot over, over women. And so all of this passage really hinges on, on two things First, it hinges on what he says next. He says the head of Christ is God. And so what Paul does is he, he brings in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so in the Trinity, you have three persons, and they are all equal in essence, in glory, in worthy, in, of honor. And, and so the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is no marking of superiority or, or, or inferiority. But what Paul does here is he refers to the, the unique time in which the second person of the Trinity condescended into the person of Jesus Christ. And during those 33 years or so, Jesus willfully decided to submit himself to his Father. Now, there's a lot of discussions in, amongst theologians as Paul here referring to some type of eternal subordination that the Son has. I would strongly disagree with that. I think Paul is just talking about the unique time of Jesus' incarnation, what we refer to as the economic trinity, in which when Jesus was here accomplishing our redemption, he submitted to the will of his Father as he would pray in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. And so first, I think we need to say right off the bat that Paul in no way, when he talks about this idea of head or headship, is, is insinuating that, that somehow men are more important or more preeminent than women at all. And so the second thing that I think hinges on this, because there's a lot of people who like to say that, that Paul here, he didn't really actually mean head. He meant the word source. And so if you look at verse 3, they would translate it something like this, but I want you to understand that the source of every man is Christ, and the source of a wife is her husband, and the source of Christ is God. And that's a compelling translation for some because it kind of undermines this idea of headship that people don't really like. And it maybe kind of just softens a little bit of what Paul is saying. The reality is, is that scholars mostly all agree that there is no ancient usage of the word head meaning source. And so I don't think that's a really a good option. So I'll tell you what, let's go to one quick passage and I think it kind of gives us the, the, the biblical context of how we should interpret 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And so if you turn in your Bibles a few pages over to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, this is the famous passage on marriage. In fact, 
We just read this passage yesterday in our church as we celebrated a wedding, Mark and Haley. And so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, we're going to see how, how this passage really, I think, informs what Paul means right here in 1 Corinthians 11. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband, now, now listen very carefully, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is, again, the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So Paul here in Ephesians 5 clearly understands this idea of head or headship to denote some type of authority. And we have no reason to suggest that when Paul, back here in 1 Corinthians 11, uses this word as head, means anything else. And so this idea of headship, if he, if he goes on a little bit in verse 4, he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head, there he's talking about literal head, covered, he dishonors his metaphorical head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head, literally, again, literal head, uncovered, dishonors her metaphorical head, her husband. And so I, I do think Paul here is, is showing us that, that, that what he is referring to in authority is this idea of Christian headship. And there's a lot of thoughts and theories and, and views on, on Christian headship, but, but let me just do my best to kind of summarize a little bit of what Christian headship is about. In, in some sense, the idea of authority is partially right in this passage. What Paul is talking about here, about headship, that the relationship that Christ had with his Father does denote some authority. But really, to, to be ahead of someone, biblically speaking, is not so much that that person has this ultimate, unchecked authority to tell another person what to do. In fact, I, I would even say another small discouragement, I would say, is, is Paul, he brings in this idea of honor, shame. And that's something we're not really used to as Americans. And so he's, he's afraid that people, by not submitting to their head, they're going to dishonor, they're going to disrespect others. And so to, to be ahead, biblically speaking, back on point, is, is really to kind of have this, this role of, of leadership. That if we, if we were to go back to Ephesians 5, Paul gives clear instructions to husbands of what their role as this leader looks like, that they lay down their lives, that they, that they serve to the point of ultimate sacrifice. That, that really to have authority in Scripture is not the authority to be served, but really it's the authority to serve others. It's the authority of Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, and so strictly speaking, if I can just say, men, like what I think this looks like and what this feels like is that you get to be the spiritual thermometer, the, the spiritual barometer of your home. You get to lead your wife and your children in, in praying and it means that our wives shouldn't be the ones dragging us to church, but we should be the ones who are encouraging the family to follow Christ. And so, so Paul here is saying that in some sense, the way when we come together, we are to have this type of respect for authority. And, and, and so for wives, I'll just give you a, a quick thought here as well. I understand why this passage is hard. I understand that, that there have been men who've had authority in the name of Christian marriage or in the church who have abused and often misused authority. And, and, and to say that, that Christian headship leads to male domination or male chauvinism is wicked and it's a sin and we should have no part of that. But at the same time, we need to understand that God has set up this, this, this drama of a marriage, right? Because, because Christ willfully chose to submit himself to his father. Did, did the father look at the son and say, I am demanding that you obey me and you go die for those wretched sinners? Of course not. Jesus was never forced to do something against his will that he didn't want to do. But rather, he, he willfully chose. And so submission needs to be put in the context of, of willful. 
It is never demanded. And so when a Christian marriage operates in this kind of way, we get to actually reflect the gospel. That husbands, you, you have this great role to, to, to show what it looks like to sacrifice, to die to self, to, to spiritually lead. But, but women, you have the opportunity to show what it looks like of Jesus coming underneath good, godly authority and joyfully submitting under that authority. So that's what it may look like in a marriage, but, but how about for us as a church, corporately gathering, when we come together, what does this type of authority look like? Well, in our church, this means that we respect that the authority that God has given to those who will lead and rule with the church office of elder. We believe that the Bible teaches that only qualified men are to hold the office of elder. More than this, we believe that, that the Bible teaches that the authoritative teaching, the preaching in front of the gathered congregation, what is happening now, is reserved for men as well. And so we want to affirm here at Hope Community Church that the differences between men and women are more than physical or physiological we need to affirm what Paul is kind of showing us here by looking at the Trinity, that the differences between men and women as they gather together have some aspect of authority. And so I would just add, when it comes to men only being qualified to, to, to be an elder, or, or men only preaching, it has nothing to do with skill or ability in fact, I did go to seminary, and there are many women in the classes who I felt were much more theologically minded. I know this church. Many of the women can really out-Bible their husbands. But at the same time, women, I would encourage you to encourage your husband to lead. Even if you can do laps around him theologically and biblically. Maybe he's just starting. Encourage him in that direction. Give him that space. Encourage him to lead. And men know that this, re, this authority that's been given to you in Christian marriage, it is to be used for the good of others. It is never a reason to demand or insist on your own way. And so that, that point was long, and, and I felt like I needed to go through that. But, but, but next we're going to see that not only do we show respect for authority, but we should show respect for one another. And so we see this in verses 7 through 12. And so what Paul is doing here, again, he is, he's given them a reason why women in their context should wear a head covering, and he goes back to creation. For a man ought not to cover his head, verse 7, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now again, we find ourselves in a tricky passage, and, and maybe we read that and we think, well, that was kind of odd. Why did Paul say that men are made in the image and glory of God? But then he goes on to say that women are made in the glory of man. And why didn't he kind of affirm that women were made in the image of God? Well, that's not what Paul is teaching. What Paul is really trying to get at, again, is the differences in creation. And so if I could just read with you um, an illustration that I found from another pastor explaining the kind of unusual way Paul sets that up in verses 7 and 8. And so this is what... If I can find it. Here it is. So I'm going to explain a little bit of why Paul seems to mention man being made in God's image and woman being made in the image of man. So, so here's this illustration. Hopefully it's helpful for you. I lost it again. Pray for me, right? <laughs> I found it. Here we go. Your prayers are answered. <clears throat> I have an apple tree in my garden, which produces apples, from which we make apple crumble. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way and brings honor to it. And the apple is the glory of the tree, and none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. And so what Paul is teaching us in verses 7 through 12 is that the differences between men and women 
are not just cultural. They are not just social. Just as the differences between the Father and the Son are not just merely social or cultural, Paul is trying to help us to see how ultimately God in his creation purposely intended for woman to come from man. And so all this leads him to another consideration in verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So you ask, what does he mean by the angels? And I answer, I don't know. <laughs> Any, anyone who tries to tell you that this is what Paul meant, they are guessing. My best thought is, is that angels desire to see God's good created order being taken with care. And so for them to, to apparently not cover themselves back then in the ancient Greek and Roman world was to maybe show sexual promiscuity. And so in a way, it's dishonoring the, the society, it's dishonoring God and the Lord, and the angels are kind of disappointed and they're grieved by it. That's the best way I can understand it. But at the same time, I would say that observation because of the angels, it's actually an important observation to help us understand the importance and the weight of what we are doing right now. When, when, when the church gathers together for corporate worship, the angels are present. As odd as that is, they are invested, they care. And that, that should show a little bit of how we should not take this time lightly. We, we, should, we do not get to worship however we want, however flippantly we want. We are to worship God by respecting his authority and his good created order. And so in verse 10, this idea of a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, again, for them, it made a lot of sense because in their culture, and maybe even a lot of Islamic cultures now, this, this passage would make a lot more sense with women wearing head coverings. I, I think what Paul is actually talking about here is that the fact that women actually got to pray and prophesy. And that was a lot different than, than most of the other religions of the world at the time. And so this symbol of authority is really her saying, I have the authority given by the church to do these things. And so one commentary says this of, of what it means of verse 10. She exercises that authority in a dignified way by respecting both herself and the rest of the congregation through the avoidance of provocative attire or any dress or behavior which would bring shame on herself, others, or God in a context where all eyes and every heart should be focused on God's glory in the midst of holy people. And so Paul is saying when a woman comes and she does prophesy or pray, she needs to do it in a way that, that is reflecting God and, and, and others, right? I mean, how many of us would know how insensitive it would be for a married woman to come to church with a t-shirt that would say single, mingle, single and ready to mingle, right? How many of us would feel uncomfortable if our spouse went to a bar and before they walked in took off their wedding ring and began talking to the opposite sex, None of that actually brings glory to God. And so when we come together for Christian worship, we need to respect one another by, by having appropriate dress, by having appropriate ways that reflect the differences between men and women. And so Paul is really afraid that people are going to take his point and abuse it. And so this is why in verses 11 and 12, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So yes, Paul believes that men and women are beautifully different. They should reflect that difference in physical ways in the congregation. But he also believes that we need each other. Men and women need each other to exist, to flourish, and to fully reflect the glory of God. And so may our church reflect both of these truths. And it's at this juncture, I'd like to say that there has been at times a danger of, of, of good, well-intentioned Christians, Christians who want to obey God's word, who, who desire to make sure that we are scrupulous in obeying God's commands, that have actually led them to having practices and doctrines that limit the ministry and the effect of women in Christ's church. And as much as we sympathize with those who, who would try to make sure that we are being faithful to Scripture, 
to, to, to err on the side of limiting women is just as evil and wicked. And so to the women of this church, I, I would say, like, don't look at this passage as if it's trying to limit you. Paul says that women can pray and prophesy. That would have been radically countercultural in, in, in what this Corinthian context was sitting in. In fact, Judaism, in their synagogues, women would have to sit behind a veil and they were to be seen, not heard. They never had any opportunity to speak publicly. In fact, in, in Greco-Roman world, they, they rarely were offered personhood. And so for Paul to, to, to raise them up and say women should pray and prophesy, but they should do it in a respectful way that doesn't bring shame upon their head, is really him saying that, that women have just as much equality and mutuality as the rest of the body of Christ. And so let us not forget that in Luke chapter 8, we read that Jesus was with his disciples and women were with them ministering. Let us not remember that, let us not forget that, that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Jesus knew this. Paul knew this. Paul had many women who partnered with him in his missionary journeys. That women were a dear encouragement to the gospel spreading all around the ancient Near East. Women in, in Scripture are deacons. They have all the variety of gifts of grace that the Spirit bestows. And so, yes, there is a difference between men and women. Paul says they are absolutely equal. And yes, we need to see the differences between them, but we should never limit them more than what Scripture has called us to limit. And so here at this church, I, I'm mindful of, of what Julie did a moment ago. Who, who encouraged us about the Holy Spirit? Who led us in worship? Last week, right here in our service, Tiffany Schrader prayed. We are grateful for the ministry of women. And in fact, I would say it's really the backbone of the women of this church that help us to be a healthy church. It's the women who show up Wednesday morning early to pray. As far as I know, there's no men's group that does that. The women by droves come to women's Bible study in the morning and in the evening. And so we need to recognize that if we are going to be a healthy church, it requires that both men and women have their rightful role. So we need to respect each other as we come together in worship. Now, some of you are asking yourselves, well, what does it mean that women can prophesy? I only have one time, you know, time for one controversial subject. Um, but in chapter 14, when we get there, I will explain more about this issue of prophesying and what that may have looked like. But with all that said, friends, let us, when we come together, yes, respect for authority. Let us avoid the danger of male chauvinism and male dominance, which is a sin. But let us also equally deny the danger of egalitarianism that just tries to bleed together all of the sexes. Both are equally destructive in their own ways. And so lastly, and more briefly, Paul gives one last reason an implication for us, and lastly, that, that we should have respect for God's created order. And so we see here, he says, judge for yourself, isn't it clear? In verse 14, he says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now, if, if I were to show up one Sunday morning to preach a sermon, and I was wearing makeup and a dress and had long hair, I think all of you would know that that would be wildly inappropriate. That, that I would be doing what Paul is telling us not to do. But what's interesting about that is if you watch a really great cinematic masterpiece, Braveheart, you see men wearing kilts, wearing blue makeup, having long hair. And so a little bit of what Paul is saying here, he's trying to say, isn't it clear in nature? Well, sometimes in, in culture, again, there's differences. And, and I recognize even in our American uh, society, there's kind of a unisex way in which we all dress, that, that jeans and a t-shirt isn't wildly inappropriate for either of the sexes. But at the same time, what I think Paul is teaching us here is that when we come together as God's people, we need to be people who embrace appropriate gender distinctions in our culture that are not sinful. What he is saying is that men should look like men, and women should look like women. Hardly controversial 50 years ago. But now we, we, we really 
have to understand that as Christians, what Paul is calling us here is, is we need to be the type of people who resist the blurring of genders that is happening in our culture in a wicked way. The idea that my biological sex is not tied to my gender and I can choose is a distortion that should make our hearts grieve. God has made us male and female. And so along this point, we need to say that God has sown into his created order, into creation, certain truths and realities that lead to human flourishing, that reflect God's glory. Among these truths that God has put into creation is, is the difference, the mutuality of the two sexes. More than this, that marriage is between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenantal relationship that God desires and has designed that children are to be born into a family in which there is one dad and one mom who love each other in a way that reflects the gospel. And so yet all of these that I just said, though, are being discarded and refused at alarming rates in our culture. More and more, there is deep confusion about who we are as men and as women. Same-sex marriage is not just tolerated, it is celebrated. There's some 40% of kids born in America today born out of wedlock. And so in this anti-God, postmodern age, and when we erase God, and we erase God's good created order that he's just sewn into the fabric of society, it's no surprise to see that none of these ideas are popular. So two thoughts I want to have here briefly. One, if you are a person here, or if you know of a person who sometimes struggles with these conflicting desires of maybe same-sex attraction, or maybe not feeling like you are the same gender of your biological sex, we are just glad that you are here. And I want you to feel encouraged that you are also in a room of people who have a lot of conflicting desires. The Bible clearly teaches there's no shortage of things that we desire that we should not do. And so we want to encourage you to be a part of a group of people who recognize that, that Jesus is our, not just our, our Savior from, from the penalty of sin, but who saves us from sin today. That we can be people who, man, we're committed to a lifetime of following what Jesus does, that when we have these conflicted desires, the culture may tell us good, but deny what the reality of, of Scripture, that we need to be around people who are going to encourage us to walk that straight and narrow. And then the second thought I have is, I understand as Christians, we've all seen certain Christians, and maybe we've even played a part in this, where we become very militant on these points. And they kind of enter into political life and, you know, and, and we very loud and, and, and dogmatically on our, on our Facebook posts say, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman and if you don't like it, that's too, that's too bad. And, and we, we kind of speak the truth, but we speak it very harshly. We speak it in a way that pushes people away. And I just want to encourage us that, that, that we can be people who who do hold to the truth, but who do so in a winsome way, who, who do it in a way that, that shows love and respect for others. And so we want to be a church that, yes, we, we hold to the truth, but we, we do it wisely, winsomely. But more than even just defending the truth, I think the best way and, and the way that the church of Jesus Christ can, can bless and grace the world is that we have the opportunity to just show the beauty of God's design. Wasn't it so great to have the Arnolds up here earlier? A man loves a woman who loves their child. That we have this opportunity to show the beauty and the goodness of how God has designed things. That, that, that women who, who love to come underneath the, the, the submission of their husbands. That husbands lay down their lives for their brides. That kids grown up in a home with a mom and a dad who love each other. 
lead to healthy and safe home lives. And so all of this, friends, we, we need to understand that it is okay to be a man and it is okay to be a woman. Young men here, it's okay to be masculine. And I understand we need to probably explain what it means to be masculine, but that's another conversation. But the, but the principle is there. It's good to be a man. And for young women, it's good to be feminine. It's, it's the way God has made you. It's a beautiful thing to be embraced. And yes, there's discussions about what it means to be feminine, but the principle stands. And so all of these truths of how God has made us and, and he has sown into creation need to be demonstrated when God's people meet together. We are to reflect all of these wonderful truths, that we respect God's authority, that we respect each other, that we show mutuality, that yes, we are different, but yet we are all equal. We all have a role to play. And that we all need to respect God's created order. And so I would say all of these things, though, ultimately, reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a living drama of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ because we are the body of Christ. And so may we endeavor to put on display God's glory. And if we care what Paul said last week in 1031, to glorify God above all else, may we do nothing that may be demonstrated as disrespect or shaming someone in this room. But may we desire to have Christian worship that respects God's authority and his good created order. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to pray for the marriages in our church. God, we thank you for that wonderful institution. God, we want to lift them up. God, we want to pray that they be healthy, that they would reflect this, this beautiful picture of, of Christ laying down his life and, and Christ leading his church, Christ submitting to the will of his Father. And so, Lord, I want to pray that as a church that we would be the kind of people who would be, who'd be able to be open and honest about any struggles we may have, that we may find encouragement and ministry from, from the body here. Lord, we also just want to pray that we, as your people, would be winsome and wise, but that we would also be committed to the truth. Lord, I pray that in our public worship gatherings that we would gloriously display the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that when we struggle with what culture is saying and, and what your word is saying, Lord, that we remember that the problem is, is with us and not with your word. And so lastly, thank you, God, for how you've made us. Thank you for your beautiful design. May we see its inherent goodness and rejoice in it. And we pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I can tell I went long because the band's not up here. All of that said, I pray that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, giving thanks to the Father for all the blessings we have in Christ. Goodbye, and God bless.